Well, kia ora and welcome to The Week That Was, a hoon with another tragic in the world of monetary and fiscal matters. <laughs> I'm really glad to have in the studio here at Parliament and with a bit of background noise from the kaka there, in Parliament we have Janae Pabtrani. Welcome, Janae, to... Excellent. Thanks for having me, Bernard. Glad to be part of the Tragics Club. That's right. It's fantastic <laughs> that you're here. I've I've not worked directly with you, Janae, but I feel a close affinity because you obviously work for interest.co.nz, which I spent five years helping to build up and, and worked in. And I've got a very um, soft spot in my monetary and fiscal policy tragic heart for, for interest.co and all it does. And we have some great discussions about the world of interest rates and budget deficits and all sorts of things. And in particular, a good old big report. I love a good big report. And it didn't get much bigger this week than the Climate Change Commission's recommendations to the government about what needs to happen with our emissions over the next 15 years. So tell us what stood out from those 400 pages and um, surprised you or you thought we should all know about? Well, the um, headline, I guess, that I focused on and with the big 400-page report was that the starting point that we are at when we try to um, lower our emissions is so much, is quite a bit worse than the Climate Change Commission thought and, and worse than it was last year. So we're actually still getting worse and now we have to get a whole lot better. So there's quite a bit more work to do. And the the thing that is, I guess the thing that's interesting about this report is that it just sets at a high level that the budgets and it provides a number of different pathways the government could, could potentially take to get there. But it really is up to the government to A, decide you know, whether it supports the, the budgets and then B, actually decide on the policies it wants to implement to get there. Yeah, so I, was ho- is, I, yeah. I was hoping for a few more crunchy policy ideas out of the commission. It took me 60 pages to get to anything that might be remotely politically um, sensitive, in particular the idea of having car imports of petrol and diesel cars stop sometime between 2032 and 2035. They didn't actually use the word ban. Mm. I, I did a quick word search and the word ban seems to have been banned <laughs> from, <laughs> from the Climate Commission report. Because, you know, lots of other countries, Britain, Europe, even Japan, have set deadlines and said, right, we will not be importing any petrol or diesel cars after 2035 or 2030. And there are a bunch of people who actually say, well, we don't need to set anything. We, we get all that stuff from Japan anyway. We'll just, you know, we'll just adopt their policies. But a couple of, year, couple of years later, in part because we get almost all of our cars imported from Japan. And then there's a whole bunch of used cars, of course, that come from Japan, mm. but with four or five years later after they're first sold. And what also surprised me a bit, because we're looking at quite a big shift in emissions. We've effectively doubled our transport emissions, for example, over, since 1990 to now when the whole idea was to start reducing them. And secondly, it looks like they're saying by 2035 we need to reduce our uh, climate emissions by 42%. Now that's an awful lot, particularly when we're all still driving around in cars belching out uh, fumes. We're not so keen on public transport. In fact, public transport use, particularly in Wellington, but all around the country, has dropped a lot because of COVID. And, And also... We love our cars. We mm. really love our cars. In fact, the top three new vehicles sold last month were in this order. The Ford Ranger, double cab ute, 
the Toyota Hilux double cab ute and the Mitsubishi Triton double cab ute. Uh, thanks to a big juicy exemption to fringe benefits tax for those who apply for it. And I, I just wonder, Janae, you know, whether the government is really willing to take on the Mike, Mike Hoskins of the world and his double cab driving mates. Mm. Yeah, well, this is uh, what it all comes down to. And it did feel a bit like the commission was trying to avoid uh, wading into some of these really nitty-gritty issues because it did stress that actually it's setting the high-level budgets, here are some ideas, here are things we could do, we can actually reach these goals, but here we go, government, it's up to you. So, you know, while you could go through the report and go through it all with a fine-tooth comb and, and look at all the things that needs to be done, in some ways it's almost... I'm not going to say waste of time, but it's not something I spent a lot of time doing because what we do need to spend a lot of time doing is looking at what the government will actually do. And Bernard, as you say, that that's the big question. Yeah, and changing th- demand, I think, is is the thing. It's one thing to ban things for the government to do that, but it needs to, we need to change our demand because uh, th- there's quite an interesting debate at the moment around whether we should produce dirty things or stop producing dirty things, but then import the dirty things, pay more for it, (laughs) lose out on that revenue. Um, And obviously, that doesn't make any sense. So if we want to change, we also have to to change what we consume, and that's where it gets tricky for individuals. Particularly when we've built our lifestyles around these things. Mm. You know, we live in the suburbs, we've got a backyard, and we've got a barbecue, and our kids go to netball, and, you know, we visit friends across the other side of the town, and we might drive into a restaurant or a movie theatre or whatever. We really depend on these things to get around, and we can't imagine what it would be like to, instead of taking the kids to netball in the in the in the SUV or the double cab, Ute throwing all the equipment in the back, and mm. you know, knowing that when the kids are tired, we can just throw them in the back and drive home. Instead, thinking about doing it with a bike. Yeah. And worrying that some truck's going to run us over. You know, this is a really, you're getting to the heart of what it is to aspire to live in a house, have a family, visit friends, mm. have a social life. It really starts to cramp your style. It does. And I mean, it, there's an equity issue as well, because it's one thing for a fit, able-bodied individual to get on their bike and cycle somewhere. If they've got lots of time as well, if they're not time constrained, you know, they can spend half an hour cycling along the waterfront to their favourite bar, no problems. But, um, you know, for people who who can't do that physically, who are time constrained, have kids, of older people, people with children, it's more difficult. And that's where this debate gets really tough and I think that's what we saw with the cycling debate as well um, Yes, it's turning yeah. into quite a culture war you know, you're either a, a cyclist and you're a latte swilling lycra wearing entitled Graylin type riding over the motorway or you're a salt of the earth, you know, hard working tradie who needs to get to work on that motorway and you know, it's interesting there was a report last night about someone who's organising a protest in Auckland where they're going to, in theory, drive along the cycleways and potentially, you know, do damage to cyclists. It's oh. it's not a friendly place to be, and I, I worry a bit that we're starting to get into a US-style culture war type arrangement where you're in my camp or in your camp and we're not, we're not going to get there very fast. And it's particularly a worry when... To make changes, for example, if we do want to reuse half of a road for a cycleway, or we do need to provide a subsidy for people to have electric bikes or 
get a cheap electric car, someone's going to have to pay for that. Mm. It's going to have to be the Mike Hoskins of the world who have a slightly higher tax rate or, you know, Otherwise, the real risk, as you point out, is that the people who will be hurt hardest in this transition are those who can't buy their cheap Isuzu Bighorn for mm. $5,000 from Japan and can have to live in the suburbs. And suddenly, no longer can they work across town, which is the only job they can get. Mm. But now they can't even take the kids to church or to, to yeah. netball. And, and the price of petrol, if they still have one of these cars is going up 30 cents a litre, according to the Climate Change Commission, according to their guesses, because <laughs> that's about what it will be yeah. on a carbon price. So there's, there are some equity issues here, and it's, those are conversations which uh, no politician wants to have, to essentially say to median voters, I want to take some of your money and give it to those other poorer people and, and try and get there. Yeah. I mean, I think on transport... Oh, just providing op- the option to make cycling more attractive and public transport more attractive is the key. And for people who need to drive, that's fine. And they should welcome some people getting off the roads and getting on their bike because it frees up um, some more space for them. And I'd like to cycle more if I felt safer and on the roads and so on and so on. I'm sure there, there are lots of people in that position. During lockdown, I think a whole bunch of people took up cycling and, and quite enjoyed it. So, you know, not for everyone, but why not make it a bit more attractive? That's right. The trouble is, of course, doing that requires someone to give up something and mm. for potentially a bunch of money to be spent on infrastructure. Speaking of money being spent and prices of things, the big debate, I'm really interested in this, the big debate in the world of economics and financial markets and if you care about interest rates and house prices, uh, which I do, in fact, that's... That, w- oh, you I, do? I don't, <laughs> I don't think we knew that. That's right. And <laughs> that was actually my you know, basic description of uh, interest.co when with David Cheston we worked out what we were going to cover and I basically said... It's all about interest rates and yes. house prices. That's the only thing New Zealanders care about. And, um, and it's true. Yeah, yeah. No, over time I've been proved right. In fact, more more so right than when I when we started off in 2008, back when house prices were half what they are now and interest rates were 11%. And those things are related, the fact that house prices are double what they are now and interest rates are 2%. So what's going to happen with interest rates? It's a big debate going on internationally. We've got this inflation spike which is coming through in New Zealand It looks like it's going to be around about 2.5% annual rate in the current June quarter, according to the Reserve Bank's own forecasts. Overseas, last night we got the most extraordinary result out of America, where inflation in the year to the end of May was, wait for it, 5%, 5%, which was above the economist's forecast for 4.7, above where it was in April of 4.2%. And when you look at the core inflation rate, which was at uh, 3.8%, that was also above expectations, 3.5%. It was actually the highest core inflation rate that America's had since 1992. So we're talking about a 29-year high in inflation. Now, normally, that sort of thing spooks everyone. Everyone goes, ah, inflation's up. The Federal Reserve will have to put up interest rates. Oh, my God, all that money I've put into bonds, suddenly I'm going to have to revalue that those bonds lower. Suddenly, bond, bond yields and interest rates will be higher. That makes the stock market not so attractive. Ah, there's going to be a crash in the stock market. That's the sort of thing that people were really, really worried about, particularly March, April of this year. There was a lot of talk about it. 
And uh, you saw the US 10-year Treasury bond yield rise to about 1.75%. And a lot of people were talking about it going over 2%. But that's not what's happening now. If you actually, mm. uh, after last night's inflation numbers, the US 10-year Treasury bond yield actually fell to 1.45%. Tell us what you can see or what you think's going on here where we seem to have an inflation spike, but people are going, hmm, actually, I'm going to wait for a bit. Yes, well, central banks, the Reserve Bank and the Federal Reserve in America are saying, look, these inflationary pressures are temporary and they will pass. And some of the structural issues that have um, made it difficult for countries to achieve target inflation levels are still there. So some of these temporary uh, pressures include issues around supply chains. You know, it's hard to move goods and services around the world at the moment, and this puts their prices up. Oil prices as well are high. That's, that's pushing up inflation. And then... But some of the structural things are still there, like globalisation. It's really, Labour is cheap. It's cheap to make goods and services. You can order it online um, from some large distributor. You don't need to go to your boutique local shop to get things. So prices of goods and services aren't really going up. And we've had really loose monetary policy for years now, before COVID. So central banks keep lowering interest rates to try to you know, stimulate economies and, and boost consumer inflation. And consumer inflation has stayed stubbornly low, but asset prices have gone up. So houses, shares, those things have, have gone up. And I guess central banks are just wary that some of these things, like with the shipping and the, and the petrol and so on, that those things, once they go away, some of those structural things are still there. But, you know, you talk to different people and they all have different views on this. And it's very, I think there's just a, a really big question mark over it, actually. I, I don't know if anyone... I, I'm not going to uh, put my money on, on, on anything, actually. It, it, but in many ways, we are all putting our money on it by betting on whether or not we have assets. Because in theory, if you thought there was going to be an inflation outbreak that stayed and the central banks had to put up interest rates, you'd be betting right now by selling your assets and getting them into cash so that you could take advantage of the uh, lower asset prices later on down the track Mm. once there's been some sort of crash. Or you'd be getting ready to fix your mortgage. For example, if you had a, if you believed that interest rates were on the way up sharply, then you'd make sure you fixed for as long as you could at current interest rates. And that's been one of the drivers for uh, people fixing four, four or five years out. Mm. Uh, and, and actually just on that, Bernard, some of the bank economists have pointed out that there are a whole bunch of mortgages, I think it's about 80% that are up for renewal within the next year. I think I have that right. So so the bulk of mortgages are, g- are going to need to refix. So should interest rates go up and should mortgage rates go up, then the impact of that's going to be huge. And the Reserve Bank acknowledges that, that it's going to get bang for its buck if it does change interest <laughs> rates. And it's, yeah, it's acknowledged as well that because New Zealanders have so much debt, as soon as the interest rates change, the effect is pretty massive. Now, no doubt they will, they will feel that pressure. Yeah, the trouble is, though, that uh, right now New Zealand homeowners are currently only spending 6% of their disposable income servicing their mortgages. So, yes, when, really? yeah, <laughs> when interest rates go up, Sure, it'll go up from 6% to 8%, which, you know, that's a a big increase in percentage terms, 25% or so. But it's certainly not painful enough to generate mortgagee sales. Mm. And for a lot of people, they'll be happy to sit and wait. They're not going to get spooked into selling. And a lot of banks won't force people into selling. 
And that's the interesting thing here, because we've also had these warnings before. Central banks since 2000, central bank governors since 2003 have been saying, oh, be careful about buying that house because I'm about to put up interest rates again. Inflation always takes off. The trouble is for the last decade, all of those warnings about interest rates and inflation going up have been wrong. Since 2007, really, the global financial crisis and the launch of the iPhone, we have seen, as you point out, structural deflation blowing through the global economy as increasingly entire industries get not just competed away, but blown away by someone with an app. Mm. You know, someone who gets together with four or five mates, they eat noodles for six months and, and, and code an app. And before you know it, they've destroyed Kodak and 30,000 jobs have gone missing and they've created something worth a billion dollars that, Insta- that Facebook will buy off them. And um, suddenly they've got a billion dollars in cash and there's only so many things you can buy with a billion dollars in cash. My, my view actually is that that deflationary engine I call, I call these phones deflationary engines in our pockets, which drag down on not just prices of goods and services, but also on wages, because so much of the services sector is now available to be globalised, where previously the only place you could get someone to do your thing for your services sector, be it financial services, medical, health, accounting, a lot of specialist you know, media, design, those sorts of services. Previously, the only way you could get them was from some office or some call centre that was in your country. Mm. Now, that can all be appified. And that's one of the things I think people don't quite realise is that between 2000 and 2020, the world's product markets, so manufactured goods, globalised and China became the factory of the world and dragged down on prices, in part because China's workforce was added to the global economy when China joined the WTO and it could start exporting things. Now, that was great for consumers. They got lots of cheap stuff. You know, the warehouse, Kmart, all of that, Walmart and Amazon took advantage of that, and so did consumers, and they got a lot of cheap stuff. But it did did put a lot of pressure down on wages as Mm. jobs were effectively shifted to China and other other places. And I just wonder that we've had that globalisation and that downward weight pressure on the goods market. I think there's a risk here that big swathes of the services sector, which in New Zealand is about 60% of the economy, have yet to feel that, particularly financial services. I think there's a chance mm. education and health services. You know, it's amazing what, what can be monitored now when you put some sort of smartwatch on. And I think there's a lot of room yet for deflation to come in there. And that means, given that central banks have the power to target inflation and keep it at a reasonable level, that they can print for Africa. There's nothing to stop them. Yeah, and in the but in the near term, so that's this is the structural stuff that you're talking about, Bernard. But in the near term, the Reserve Bank is still worried that skill shortages because of our closed borders will actually put um, pressure on wages. We'll see wages go up. And that some of the inflation, talking about these temporary things again, some of that might actually be coming from wage growth. Now, it would be, you know, not not ideal if we've got inflation because of wage growth because of shortages and inflation because of, you know, supply chain issues and so on, but and, and not actually economic growth. And then interest rates go up. And they're not going up because the economy's hot. They're going up because they're these temporary things. So I, I think the Reserve Bank recognises that and, and will look past it because it is harder to try to encourage to get inflation going. That, that they think is more difficult than to try to put a lid on it. 
Yeah, no, that's why I um, buy as many houses as I can, so that when they cut interest rates to deal with it, I make lots of money. And it's the same for any other asset owner. In the last decade, is there's always a bailout, and the central bank will always print money, which at some point will be wrong. And there is this, the most dangerous saying in economics is this time is different. And we'll see whether this... I think the key, you're right, is to watch what's happening with wages. Mm. If we can see wages really start to take off, then that's, that's a real sign that it looks like it'll stick. But we now have a, a, a non-unionised workforce in New Zealand. Less than 10% of the private sector's workers are now unionised. Back in the 70s, when you did have wage price spirals, that number was well north of 50% in New Zealand and, and even higher in other countries. And we did not have these work platforms, the um, task rabbits and all of these sorts of platforms where not only you're competing against another person in your town, you're competing against someone in India or mm. Venezuela who can offer that same service online. So I, I, my current thesis is that wage inflation will not take off and that I need to run out and buy another rental property. But <laughs> onwards and upwards, we are interested in what the Reserve Bank is doing in terms of its own money printing program. So what we're talking about here is quantitative easing. The Reserve Bank calls it the the large-scale asset program, the LSAP, and it has a mandate to effectively buy up to $100 billion worth of bonds by June of next year. It's currently about $56 billion or so through, is that right? About, yeah, $52 billion of New Zealand government bonds, about one point. Seven billion of local government funding agencies. Yeah, yeah. So they're sort of just over halfway through. They don't think they're going to get to the full 100 bill by the by June next year. And tell me, Janae, why is it that they're not going to get to the full 100 by end of June next year? Okay, so when the Reserve Bank launched this program in March 2020, it launched it a bit smaller and it said, look, we're going to have to involve ourselves in the bond market. If we do that a lot, then it'll put downward pressure on interest rates. And then it expanded the program and it said, right, we'll buy up to $100 billion. And that was never a target, it was just a limit. But now that the government is issuing less debt, so fewer bonds than the Reserve Bank expected last year, there isn't quite so much for the Reserve Bank to buy. It can't be as active. And the Reserve Bank, there's a limit on how active it can be in that market. It, it can only buy um, up to 60% of the bonds on issue. So every week it sets out a, a forecast purchase amount and it's been <clears throat> it's been lowering that every week. And it's actually just lowered it again for next week. It's It, it thinks it'll buy $220 million of, of bonds. And I mean, last year it was buying well over a billion dollars a week. So it's, it's wound that right back. But importantly, the Reserve Bank has said that if it does buy fewer bonds each week, it doesn't necessarily represent a change in its monetary policy. So it's not tightening monetary policy by buying fewer bonds. It's just basically a function of fewer bonds there. And also, it doesn't get quite as much bang for its buck anymore. So when it came in initially and went hard in the market, it had a huge effect and it really put downward pressure on rates. It's not quite uh, as effective anymore. And uh, you're right, with fewer bonds for the government to issue, and therefore if the, if the Reserve Bank kept buying at its current pace, it would effectively be pushing even further down on interest rates. So the, the key aspect is the net, netness of it. At the moment, the Reserve Bank, as you say, down to $220 million a week from next week. It did $250 million a week this week. 
And just to give you an idea of how much it's soaking up, the government is currently borrowing about $300 million a week. So about two-thirds of that effectively is recycled back into the Reserve Bank within a few weeks. And that is, you know, that's a continual pressure downwards on longer-term interest rates. But the Reserve Bank has had some things to say about this in the last couple of weeks, particularly in a speech about its balance sheet, because you have to ask yourself the question, they've bought all these bonds, they created the money, bought the bonds, and when things need to unwind, when they need to tighten policy again, I had this thought in my head, oh, well, they'll just go out and sell the bonds back into the market. But it may not work out like that. Yeah, so the Reserve Bank last week decided now is a good time to talk about what would happen in June next year when it doesn't make these routine bond purchases anymore as part of its LSAT program. And as as Bernard said, you know, some people thought they'll just sell the bonds, but actually they indicated they, they probably wouldn't do that. And, and not just that, they probably wouldn't just let the bonds roll off its balance sheet when they mature, but it might actually need to keep um, buying more bonds because it, it can't just go hard into the bond market and then kind of pull out. You know, it needs to keep being involved because the the level of involvement that the Reserve Bank has in that market impacts interest rates. So if it just naturally takes its hands off the wheel and, and lets the bonds mature and, and leaves it, then that might kind of have a perverse effect or it might not have the effect that it wants on interest rates. So I, I hope I haven't lost people with no, that explanation. You, you really explained well <laughs> the risk here of tapering too quickly, yes. of pulling the turkey away from the drug addict too too quickly. And that's the guts of it. The New Zealand uh, market and, in fact, financial markets and interest rate markets around the world are now completely addicted to this, all of this stuff. It's like once you get in there, you can't just pull out really fast. And the Reserve Bank might need to keep buying these bonds for for 20 years because the, the bond with the longest duration on its balance sheet is due to mature in 2041. That's 20 years away. So, yeah. So we're, that, in a whole, we're in a new world now. But when you talk, I, I talked to a few um, people in the banking sector, and I guess banks make money from this, that they're an intermediary in this whole process. But th- they didn't see a problem with it. They're like, this is just how QE works. If you do it, other countries have been doing it, then you need to expect to continue being involved. Yeah. If I didn't own a house, though, And I had looked at what the government and the Reserve Bank decided to do in March 2020, which was effectively to make rich people even richer as a way to boost the economy and ensure that we didn't have some sort of economic or financial collapse. And that the way they did it was to invent 50-something billion dollars and to hand it over to the owner of a government bond, who was probably a bank or a pension fund, and say, here, I'm about to make you a little bit richer. Could you make some of that money trickle down into the real economy, please? I would feel pretty grumpy. Essentially, some politician and some central banker made a decision that makes it harder for me to get in on the act and sentences me to being a renter. Yeah. The, the the argument that people will make is that if all central banks around the world are loosening monetary policy, then New Zealand can't not do that. That might affect our dollar and we'll be out of sync with everyone. So, okay, whatever, that's fine. But the thing, the question that I have is not every country in the world has the structural issues that we have that encourage a disproportionate amount of investment in housing. So you're taking a global policy of heaps of stimulus and you're putting it on top of our already problematic housing market and, and 
and and then you end up in the situation we're in. And the Reserve Bank actually published some nice graphs that showed the asset price inflation in different countries, and it just showed how uh, very loose monetary policy, so the QE and the lowering of the official cash rate, the lowering of interest rates, how how it disproportionately affected housing in New Zealand. And you can't unwind that. This is the thing. It's unwindable. No, particularly when the government says that, the, in answer to your question, actually, towards the end of last year, you asked the Prime Minister absolutely rightly, how come house price investors seem to have this sort of guarantee under the value of their houses and people who invest in other assets like shares don't? Why is it the government and the Reserve Bank seem to treat this market differently, that it has to be rescued or bolstered or that it has to be used as a tool to loose, to, to stimulate the economy. And her, her answer, which for me is still shocking actually, she said, well, it's the main asset of most New Zealanders and I'm here to help protect it. Yeah, yeah, well that's, I mean... She said it, but we all know it. So, this, you know, she said yeah. what we, we already knew. And, I mean, for the Reserve Bank as well, that when they say they get bang for their buck, that they are getting bang for their buck because they know that if they lower interest rates, it will have a very stimulatory effect because we do love to, you know, borrow and, and buy houses. Mm. And and those bankers that you talk, talk to can see the logic of it and can see that it seems reasonably fair. The Reserve Bank makes money and then buys something and has some real value in a transparent, obvious way. There's a market, you know, there's a, a sale price and, a, and it's all very above board. But if you are one of those people who didn't get some of that money that was invented and didn't benefit from the rise in asset prices, I'd be thinking about a revolution. And, and, and when I say revolution, I'd be asking the Reserve Bank and the government, why didn't you, if you're going to invent money, hand it out equally to everyone so that they can actually spend it or invest it in the real economy and not just recirculate it into a bank account as another term deposit or into a piece of art or a you know vintage mm. car or or another treasury bond somewhere else. Yeah, and I think that's a discussion that we need to have and no one, no one really wants to have it because everyone says, well, the Reserve Bank had to loosen monetary policy a lot, that's fine, and and the government did do the wage subsidy and so on, and that's fine, but what are some of the counterfactuals? Could the Reserve Bank had have done less monetary policy and the government have done you know, more fiscal stimulus? And, and what some of the options? I don't think there was ever just one option. And I think we should explore the, 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 That's the right. different options yeah. I mean, everyone, and have some accountability Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I still think it was a mistake not to do a direct cash payment one-off to everyone at the same amount. And this is what happened in Australia and in the United States, and it was very effective at stimulating their economies. Now, you could argue their economies were in much more trouble because they did so badly on COVID. Well, America, not Australia. And but Joe Biden and Donald Trump, to give them give them credit, have handed over close to two and a half thousand dollars per family in cash, and are continuing to do to do quite a lot of that, and it has immediately improved the lives of millions of people, and has reduced child poverty. It has halved child poverty inside a year, whereas in New Zealand, despite lots of talk about child poverty. The government's main actions during COVID were to um, order the Reserve Bank to make rich people even richer by pumping up their asset prices, and then by handing $14 billion in 
in, in cash to employers. And that helped, you know, ensure that there weren't a whole bunch of sackings all at once. But it also meant once things were stabilised, most people didn't give that back. And when you look at the term deposit accounts for non-financial businesses in New Zealand, they were up by about $15 billion by the end of last year. So that was $14 billion of government cash that was given to people, most of whom, you know, most people who own businesses are, are already wealthy. You made with two large pieces of government policy, already wealthy people, wealthier, and then didn't help people who were poor, or particularly you know, migrant workers who might have been out of work, didn't help them much at all. Yeah. Now, I'll, I'll just because the, some, a spokesperson from the Reserve Bank is admittedly not in this room, so I'll just <laughs> <laughs> for this I'll just give give their view. Now, this mm. is not this is just the Reserve Bank's view yeah. on this, and also Treasuries. They, they say that we don't know the distributional impacts of this loose monetary policy yet. Yep. Okay. Don't. Yep. <laughs> you you can't see Bernard's face, but yep. And, and they the, the argument is that actually, if if rich people feel rich and they and they you know they've had all the support through the low interest rates, then they will spend more, that increases demand, and then that keeps people people employed because these people are out and about, there's the wealth effect, they're spending money, and, and they're saying actually even people who don't own assets have benefited because they've kept their job, because demand's been supported. Yeah, and I, I get that. The last thing you want is a swathe of people who are unemployed. But I think they could have done both, actually. Mm. And when you look at the amount of cash the government is now sitting on, $40 billion in its Crown Settlement account, and you look at um, what's happening with the budget um, deficit, which was half in the 10 months to the end of May, uh, or maybe, sorry, 10 months to the end of April, half what was expected just in the budget about six weeks ago, that is a very healthy set of government accounts. $40 billion. The government is borrowing a lot of money, even though it's, it's borrowing less than it thought it had to, but it's actually struggling to get the money out of the door and into the economy. It's allocated a whole lot of money, but the, the money, it's difficult to get it in, other than the wage subsidy. And a lot of this is, you know, infrastructure projects and, and things like that. Now, th- that might be a capability issue and a capacity issue that in terms of the, the people to, to spend the money. Interesting, yet the government and the Prime Minister said this week that uh, we couldn't afford big pay pay increases for nurses Mm. and we couldn't afford to do all of the uh, recommendations of the Welfare Advisory Group because we couldn't afford it. It's worth challenging that. But anyway, the other thing that was really interesting what you're talking about there with house prices and New Zealand's particularly juicy jump in house prices because of QE is our supply shortages and the problems we have with getting houses built. Tell us about what you're seeing with Kyanga Order in terms of house building, the former state housing corporation, which is now the largest house builder in New Zealand. It's doing a fantastic doing a fantastic job at uh, getting houses built. What, what are you seeing there? Yeah, well, um, Kyanga Order is, houses are being built, contrary to, to what people think. I, I mean, not as much, obviously, that needs to be built, but it is happening. And actually, I went on it, they took me on a tour, which was quite useful around parts of Auckland, around um, Mount Roskill and Mangere, and looked at some of these projects. And a lot of what they're doing is knocking down old state houses and where there was once one state house on a big section, popping up three and having higher density uh, public housing. And actually, we had a look at some apartment type blocks as well. So that seems like a, a better use of land, but obviously a, a lifestyle change for those people who might have 
been used to have big families and we're used to living on larger sections. Also, some of these developments are happening in quite central areas. But for people familiar with Mount Roskill, it's a pretty good area, but the transport routes are still problematic. So I don't know how well the transport planning is happening with the house yeah, planning. Yeah, it, it has to be integrated. And that's the most interesting thing here is that the government's building lots of houses through Kaingawata mostly and is encouraging developers like um, Ockham and Fletcher Residential and others to build more of these higher density, uh, compact apartment style, townhouse style things. But to do that, you really need to make sure your public transport's right, your cycling routes and your pedestrian arrangements are okay. And I do wonder about that because both councils and the government are continuing to say they can't afford infrastructure spending to go with that. And it was surprising to me and sort of disappointing last week that the government chose not to go ahead with two big motorway developments because they said costs have blown out, at least partly because of rises in residential land prices. And that is, you know, there are many who say the only way to solve our housing affordability crisis is to deal with it as with a supply shock, you know, by pumping lots of houses in there. But to do that, you really need to spend money on infrastructure. You can't just plonk a house on a paddock. You've got to have the pipes and the the roads and all sorts of things. And that that for me is the, the slightly worrying thing to come out of this, again, the government's focus on keeping a lid on debt is that by keeping a lid on debt, they're also keeping a lid on the number of houses that we can build. Yeah, and at that point, I guess the, the, the question I have, and it's difficult, was how much of this is a capacity and a capability constraint versus a fear of debt? And, I mean, no doubt we could plan ahead, can't we, Bernard, and get the expertise in to just get it done. I don't know why it's so difficult. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You're right. I mean, there's no way that you could spend $100 billion tomorrow and say, give me uh, 200,000 houses, please. I want them by lunchtime. That's not going to happen. But what you could do is indicate to the market, to the Fletcher Residentials and the Genians and the GJ Gardeners and Congo Order and everyone else, that we are going to build 200,000 houses over the next 20 years. So your job right now is to um, build that house manufacturing plant or train those 2,000 plumbers or bring in the 4,000 apprentice electricians. And you can be sure, because I've committed to it, and so is the opposition, or at least we've got the money to do it, that over time we're going to build those houses and you're not going to get burnt when you've built a housing manufacturing plant or you've just employed 2,000 people and suddenly there's a housing bust and you have to sack them, that's not going to happen because as the government, the government is the one body in the country with the balance sheet and the borrowing costs to guarantee, to underwrite Mm. that sort of housing supply growth. Yeah, and actually it was interesting because during COVID they did uh, ring fence some money to underwrite development at risk, developments at risk of not going ahead. So basically this means that when the developer goes to the bank, they can say, okay, look, bank, if we don't sell all our apartments off the plans, that don't panic because the government has got our back and then it'll make it easier for them to get the loan, put very simply. But the government actually removed that. They're no longer providing that underwrite because they they didn't think it was necessary anymore because the demand for housing is so great that these developers don't need the underwrite. So KiwiBuild is still, there's still an underwrite available for that, but more broadly, they've sort of pushed pause on that. That's interesting, isn't it? They really, the, the, 
culturally and in the DNA of Treasury and the, and the likes, they hate subsidising things. They hate the government handing over money to what appear to be private developers or, or individuals because they fear that they are creating a non-level playing field, that they are being, they're being opened up to being gamed by some sneaky developer or some particular interest group. The danger there, though, is that this obsession with level playing fields and restricting the size of government and keeping the size of government down by making sure that there's a debt limit is that you create, when you have very fast population growth, you effectively create an artificial limit on your supply in your economy. And the one thing that does is squeeze up prices. And um, you're right to point out that New Zealand was most vulnerable to the effects of QE on asset prices that particularly important for people's lives. So, you know, the price of diamonds goes up or the Bitcoin price goes up, that's not going to hurt a lot of people or help a lot of people. But in New Zealand, when you push up the price of houses, we all have to, 100% of the population have to live in a house, we hope, and 60% of the population own houses. So they're going to get the benefits of that gain. And by the way, they're tax-free benefits too. And that's, that's the thing. I think we haven't quite understood that because we're so dependent on housing, everything's always about interest rates and house prices. QE, the large-scale asset program, had a disproportionately large effect. And as you say, it now can't be unwound. And that's the, that's mm. the worrying thing, I think. Yes, yes. And, yep, well... Q, yeah, so QE is still there, but whether the house prices can fall, that's the big question. How, how much could they fall by? How they much will, will they be allow my, them to fall by? My incredibly cynical view is that if there's any suggestion house prices are going to fall, middle New Zealand screams yes. at the Prime Minister and the Reserve Bank, this isn't allowed to happen. It's never been allowed to happen before. You guaranteed that I wouldn't lose money. I love those surveys that they do when they ask people, do you want house prices to fall? And they say, yes, yes, we do. And, the, and there was some survey recently, but actually, yeah. actually, if you have a $700,000 mortgage, you're not going to be that chuffed No, <laughs> the and, house prices And I, I've seen three election campaigns where effectively that was the argument. The, the opposition said, let's have a capital gains tax. And the government at that point, the National Party, said – that's going to cost you money. And a whole bunch of people said, well, I don't want that. I'm going to vote for, for, for National. And the other thing is, great to, to finish this off and to sort of wrap it and take it right back to the start of the climate report. Great survey out last night from IAGNZ in which they asked people, what do you want the government to do about climate change? How important is it? And uh, nearly 70% of the population said, yep, it's really important and we want the government to do more. And in fact, that was significantly up from the last survey done in 2020. So people are seem to care about climate change mm. and about the government doing more. And then the next question in the survey was, so would you be okay with paying higher taxes and higher rates for the government to do more? Oh, no. no. So 70% yes. said didn't do more. Only 30% said they'd be prepared to pay for it. So where does the money come from? The, the, you know, who's mm. the... What's the magic thinking behind all of that? And what IAG really wants is for people to de-risk and move away from the coast and earthquake-prone areas so that IAG doesn't have to pay out so much when there are climate events. Uh, yes, yes, <laughs> like the one we had in the South Island just a couple of weeks ago. Although it would be interesting to know of all of those houses, which it's pretty clear now from the maps that have been developed, we know which houses are at risk. You know, the ones where South Dunedin, for example, we've seen the maps. 
I wonder how many of those houses are still being sold and insured and banked, because I think a lot of them are. And the banks and the insurers here haven't really had that moment of truth where they someone calls up and says, right, I want to buy, sell my house to someone. And they got a phone, they got a, they rang the insurance company and the insurance company said, no, that can't be right, can it? My house is worthless if, I, if they can't get it insured. Mm. Yeah, I think we're seeing it in Wellington apartments. That's where we have seen that. But in terms of low-lying areas uh, or areas prone to liquefaction and that type of thing, definitely not. There's too much of a housing shortage for, for the climate <laughs> risk uh, to be priced in. And we have this huge moral hazard now where the government's underwritten the housing market. There will be a bunch of people who buy these um, houses that are at risk of sea level change or climate events. They might be close to a river or, or a bush piece of bush and they get burnt or whatever, who say, well, you allowed me to buy or build this house and now you're telling me that I can't live here? Well, you need to pay me some money then. Yes. And and then the young who don't own the home effectively end up subsidising the purchase or the compensation for those people who did live in that dodgy area and frankly knew about it before they jumped in. Yeah, I think this is going to be the hard part of this RMA reform that is happening, that they're going to introduce a new piece of legislation that deals with climate adaptation and it will deal with this issue of compensation and who to compensate and how councils deal with that. And what's fair. And what's fair. It is, look, I think that is the the next big issue within the next 10 years. I I imagine the government's just trying to put it off uh, (laughs) for someone else to deal with. James Shaw is um, keen to get the Climate Adaptation Act up as one of the big three changes. You've got the RMA Act and the Strategic Planning Act, and he wants the Climate Adaptation Act to start writing the rules on who gets compensated and who doesn't and when the cutoff points are. And we'll see whether that, that goes through. You're talking about some very sensitive issues because, and I'm, I'm loving saying this, as an alumni of the interest stock team, there's nothing more important than interest rates and house prices. Janae Tiptrani from Interest.co, it's been a real pleasure to have you on this afternoon. Great fun to talk about that stuff. And uh, looking forward in a month or so to having you on again. I'm Bernard Hickey. This has been Ahoon on the Kaka. Have a great weekend.